Well, good morning. Happy 4th of July. You know, it's good to be back here in Danville, and it's really good to actually see people in person. So I appreciate that. I hope everyone's enjoying their 4th of July weekend. Perhaps you've seen a couple fireworks shows already, or maybe you're going to go to one this evening. But I love fireworks. I actually have to fight the urge every time I drive by one of those tents to not pull over and buy just a little bit more. It's a struggle for me. I've done very well this year. My wife being due in a couple weeks has helped with that. Um, And my children love fireworks, if you can imagine, because I have introduced them to them. Well, at least most of the time, every once in a while, they cry and scream and provide a nice background to the fireworks show that all of the people around us love. But in the most instances, my children, and I think adults as well, just love fireworks. And what's not to love, right? Big explosions, beautiful colors, a little feeling of danger and anticipation that comes as every shell launches into the sky and we sit there waiting to see what the color or design might be. There's even a a sense of community, I think, around fireworks as we, we all come together, we ooh and ah in unison, right? Looking up together at the loud and brilliant displays. The fireworks shows, you see, they don't last, right? The, the big finale eventually comes. Most of the time, right, we sit there and kind of wait, thinking that, oh, maybe there's a little bit more, but alas, it's over. And it's time to go home. You see, and then, if, let's be honest, whatever joy or togetherness we felt in that moment, it all comes crashing down as we all go to the car and road rage begins. Because you, you know, everybody needs to get out of my way so I can drive home at time. Now our passage this morning, like a fireworks show, is about bringing people together. And it records a huge event that, like fireworks, was explosive. It sent shockwaves through the early church. It was a transformational event. and It's a huge turning point in the history of of the church. It's a huge event where God demonstrates how he has broken down the walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he makes it clear that God's people are everyone who follows Jesus. It says in our passage, Acts 10, 43, everyone who believes in him, in Jesus Christ, received forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, I know this seems pretty straightforward and normal for us today, as we have an almost entirely Gentile church, I believe, I could be wrong. But you see, Paul called this a mystery of the gospel. It had been a mystery to the Jewish people that the Messiah was coming not just for them, but for all nations. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that's good news for us this morning. Today in our passage, we're going to see clearly how that great mystery bursts onto the scene in the early church. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Today we're actually going to cover Acts 10 and 11. And due to the length and honestly just how great of a narrative it is, I'm going to essentially just walk through our passage this morning and then at the end quickly share some key points and applications for us. As we begin and you're looking at your word, I actually want you to look at the end of Acts 9 as it helps set up the importance of our passage, right? The beginning of Acts 9, we looked at last week with Paul's amazing conversion, but the end of Acts 9 shifts back to Peter. 
You see, Luke sets up our passage by putting it up alongside a couple miracles in Peter's ministry. If you look closely, starting in verse 32, depending on your translation, there's going to be a couple paragraphs, maybe a, a couple titles. And first, we see Peter heals Aeneas, someone who'd been paralyzed, bedridden for eight years. It's an amazing miracle, but it gets a short paragraph, four verses. Then in verse 36, we learn how a disciple named Tabitha, or Dorcas in Greek, I don't know about you guys, but I'd stick with Tabitha personally. <laughs> but Tabitha gets sick and she dies. Peter goes to her, kneels by her and prays and then turns to her and says, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and rose to life. She's raised from the dead. An amazing miracle that Luke gives a slightly longer paragraph, eight verses to. And then we get to Acts 10 with Peter again, but a, another character, Cornelius. And it takes the entire 48 verses of chapter 10, then it's repeated again in chapter 11, and then later in verse 15, the story's going to be summarized again for a third time. Luke wants us to know and see the significance of this passage. I like how the late pastor Warren Wearsby sees Luke's setup to Acts 10. He writes, what is the greatest miracle that God can do for us? Some would call the healing of the body God's greatest miracle, while others would vote for the raising of the dead. However, I think the greatest miracle of all is the salvation of a lost sinner. Why, he writes? Because salvation comes, salvation costs the greatest price. It produces the greatest results and it brings the greatest glory to God. You see, Luke's drawing out for us that this greatest miracle, the salvation of an unbeliever, a lost sinner, and in our passage, a lost Gentile, is in fact greater than healing or even raising from the dead. I wonder this morning, do we see salvation in Christ this way? You know, we can witness and see Great things, but we can see no greater miracle on this earth than to see a lost sinner come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, don't, don't lose sight of the miracle that has happened in your life. If you have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, this greatest miracle of salvation has occurred in you. So let's look at a wonderful passage that, that shares one of those such stories. So starting in Acts 10, just follow along with me. We're going to roll through this. We meet Cornelius, and we learn a few things about him. He's a centurion of an Italian cohort. I like Italians. The Luca. So he's a centurion. He's likely leading about 100 men. It says he's a devout man of feared God. He was a God-fearer. He was actually seeking to follow the God of Israel, even though he wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile. He gave alms to the Jewish people and he prayed continuously, he says. So he's a generous man of prayer. For all intents and purposes, Cornelius is a morally upright man from a worldly perspective. But you see, he was an uncircumcised Gentile. And here starts a rising tension in our passage. We have a Gentile seeking God, someone who have not been fully let in to the Jewish religion for sure, but what about the church? 
What about Gentiles and the good news of Jesus Christ? Should the Jewish believers fellowship with them? You see, in Jewish customs, they were not even to associate themselves with Gentiles. And this tension is going to come front and center in our passage. We read at the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m., Cornelius was praying. And he sees a vision of an angel of God who calls to him, Cornelius, which frightens him. Or as it says, he stared at him in terror. I know I would be surprised if an angel called to me when I was praying. And the angel tells him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Cornelius is a great example for us. He immediately obeys. He calls three men, two of his servants, and another devout soldier to go to Joppa and get Peter. So then in verse 9, we're going to zoom over to Peter, who's in Joppa. And we, we, we come in on him on the next day, and we find him also praying at the sixth hour. It's, it's noon. It's lunchtime. And just like me at noon, Peter is hungry. He calls down for some food, and while they're preparing it, it says he falls into a trance, and Peter, too, gets a vision. Let's read what he saw, starting in verse 11. It says, the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter sees this great sheet descending from heaven. It's probably one of those premium luxury Egyptian cotton 1500 count sheets. It's on my Amazon wish list if you... Just kidding. All right, it's a heavenly sheet. Or maybe in this case, a heavenly tablecloth. But that's not the point. You see, in this sheet, there's all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds. What is significant here is that these animals included many unclean animals, such as pigs or a rock badger. I'm not sure what a rock badger is, but you can look at Leviticus 11 and find the list of unclean animals that Jews were to detest and they weren't supposed to eat, and the rock badger makes the list. we got to know that. You see, Peter clearly knew he was not supposed to eat any of these according to Leviticus 11. But the voice is essentially telling Peter, I know you're hungry. Rise up, kill a pig, cook some bacon, and dig in. <laughs> to which we should all say, amen. amen. Thanks for the vision. End of story. I feel good. I know many of you are hoping, I'll jump to the application point now, so you can go home, make some vaping, savor it, and say to yourself, man, I'm just hitting that Bible application points today out of the park. And although I'd encourage you to enjoy God's gift of bacon, that's unfortunately not the point here. In fact, Peter is taken aback by the command. He's never eaten any unclean animal in his life, so he essentially tells the Lord, thanks, but no thanks. Which, if you know anything about Peter, I think is a classic Peter moment, right? Peter has a tendency to speak a little too quickly in certain moments. He puts his mouth, or his foot in his mouth, his mouth in his foot, I don't think that works. Puts his foot in his mouth, 
only to be corrected and set straight by the Lord. And there's no exception here, right? The voice responds, what God has made clean, do not call common. And in classic Peter style again, he's a little hard-headed like me. All of this occurs three times for him to make sure he really gets the point. So what is the point? Is this about food? Well, kind of. You see, the clean and unclean food rules are a major dividing point between Jews and Gentiles. One reason Gentiles were considered unclean is that they didn't follow Jewish food regulations in the Mosaic Law, how to handle food, what kind of food can be eaten. This was one of the ways that God's people were to set themselves apart, to be holy. Even though Jesus addressed this, in Mark 7, he actually taught that what people eat doesn't defile them, but rather what comes from the, from the inside, from the heart, is what defiles a person. Jesus here was actually declaring all food clean. Yet, it's hard for us to apply all that Jesus teaches. You see, the Jewish customs were still very much a huge part of the Jewish believers' lives, and it was a major issue when it came to Gentiles to fellowshipping with them, to being God's witness to them. So Peter's inwardly perplexed as he's trying to figure out what God is trying to teach him and what this vision means, this tablecloth coming down full of animals. While Peter's still pondering this, meditating on what God showed him, Cornelius' men arrive in Joppa. And the Spirit tells Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down. And accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. The Spirit gives Peter the next step. So Peter obeys, goes down to them, and asks them why they came. So these men explain Cornelius' side of the story. They, they share his vision and how they, they're supposed to bring Peter back to Caesarea. The next part stands out to me as Peter was told right to go with them without hesitation. Yet he invites them in to be his guests. Which personally, I feel is a little hesitation, but God's at work. Because you see, this hospitality that Peter shows these Gentiles is another step forward. Another step forward in removing the division between Jews and Gentiles. Peter's inviting these men in, which would have meant he fellowshiped with them, he ate with them. Although the food still would have been kosher, so no bacon yet. I'm sorry. I just love how the Holy Spirit is orchestrating this whole process, taking Peter one step at a time. He's patiently preparing Peter's heart, his mind to follow the Lord's plan and fully get on board with God's mission to the Gentiles. God is patiently working in Peter. So the next day, they get up, they head to Caesarea. Peter brings along with him six Jewish believers from Joppa, which is significant because it's actually three times the number of witnesses That would have been normally required by Jewish law. So this group's important. They're going to be key witnesses to what God is about to do. So they arrive in Caesarea the next day. Cornelius is anxiously expecting them. He actually brought together his relatives, his friends. He's got a crowd gathered to hear what Peter is saying. Cornelius is anxious to understand and hear what Peter has to tell him. He actually falls to Peter's feet and worships him. Peter doesn't accept the worship. Instead, lifts him back up and tells him, stand up. I, too, am a man. I think this is another step 
You see, Peter puts himself on level ground with Cornelius. He shouldn't have accepted his worship, but he explains, I too am just a man. And then Peter clears the air, which I imagine might have been a little awkward. Verse 28, he says, now to this crowd of people gathered, excited to hear what he has to say, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with you or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter just wants to clear the air. Hey, I'm not supposed to be here. But Peter is continuing to follow the Spirit's leading. But he's still not sure what is going to happen next. So he actually asked Cornelius why he sent for him. I'm guessing at this point, Jesus' commission, right before he ascended into heaven, wasn't ringing in Peter's ears. But I think it will be shortly, right? You know it, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing him in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Remember that teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, part. You see, Cornelius' response to Peter, he recounts his vision. We just keep getting the story. And I love how he ends in verse 33. Go ahead and look there now. Cornelius says, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God, ready to hear what God has orchestrated, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I don't think God can make it any clearer what Peter is supposed to do. Cornelius is essentially telling Peter, great commission me. I don't know if you can use that as a verb, but we will this morning. Cornelius wants Peter to great commission him, teach him all that he has been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius' friends are ready to hear the good news, ready to hear all that Peter was commanded by the Lord. May we all have such humble posture when we approach God's word in our own quiet times. Peter can't ask for a better audience. And I think here the light bulb finally clicks on. I imagine the Great Commission came to mind. Look at verses 34 and 35 with me. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter finally understands now what God was showing him. God shows no partiality. God does not have any favorites. It's no longer about Jew or Gentile. It's about God's people, period. Those who follow him by grace through faith. So Peter goes on to share the gospel about how God sent good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He says, who is Lord of all. How Jesus was killed, hung on a tree, but God raised him from the dead. And I love this last part. You see, Peter explains that all the prophets that Cornelius, being a God-fearer, was likely studying, trying to learn more about, they were all actually pointing to Jesus, is what Peter tells them. He's saying, Cornelius, Jesus is who you've been searching for. And what happens next is huge. I'd love to have this to happen someday while I was preaching. Before Peter is done preaching, you see he gets interrupted. Don't interrupt me right now, please. You see, all of these uncircumcised, uncircumcised Gentiles, they heard the word and they received the Holy Spirit. They begin speaking in tongues, extolling God. The Holy Spirit breaks in, 
during Peter's message as if to remind us who is orchestrating everything, who actually brings new life to these Gentiles. The Holy Spirit works the the mighty miracle of bringing salvation to lost sinners. The Jewish believers there, the witnesses who came with Peter are amazed because you see the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles much like it had come on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. They have new life in Christ. The, The Holy Spirit is declaring, witnessing to all of them that these are my people. These are God's people. You see, this is an amazing picture of Ephesians 1 through 3, which says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, they heard the truth and believed in him. They believed were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. They heard the word. They believed and they received the Holy Spirit. God's making it clear this isn't about food or nationality. God shows no partiality. It's all about Jesus and how anyone from any nation that repents and places their faith in him are his. Peter gets it. Then Peter takes one more step to show us that he gets it. He says, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. They've received the Holy Spirit, been baptized by the Holy Spirit, and now it's time to get baptized as a step of obedience, symbolizing that they are united to Christ, welcomed into Christ's family, welcomed into the church as a new creation in Christ. You see, the division between Jews and Gentiles was washed away. This is a huge moment. It opens the door for the gospel and the church to explode to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. But the work's not done, right? Just because God has made his mission and his plan clear, Peter finally gets it. God's people have a tendency to be slow to catch on, slow to humble themselves and join his mission. We see this right away in Acts 11, right? Peter has to defend himself He actually has to defend what happened to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem called the Circumcised Party. Not a name I'd love to go under. Because you see, they heard what happened with Cornelius and Caesarea, and they criticized Peter. They criticized him for fellowshipping with uncircumcised Gentiles, eating with them, preaching the word, baptizing them. And I just love Peter's response. He just tells the story. He shares the testimony of what the Holy Spirit did. And I love Peter's exclamation point at the end of this defense. Peter has a mic drop moment on his critics. In Acts 11, 17, he says, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's essentially saying, I didn't do it. God did it. Who am I to stand in his way? Boom. It says, When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Case closed. Eternal life that comes by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is not just for Jews, but for everyone who believes. From every nation, every people, every tribe. See, brothers and sisters, the main point of our passage teaches us this. 
We are not the determiners of who deserves the gospel or who God might decide to show mercy to and open their eyes to the truth. But instead, we are to be his ambassadors, conduits of the good news, like Peter taking one step at a time in faith. We're called to get on board with God's mission to make disciples of all nations. That's why harmony exists, right? Our mission is to bring glory to God by being disciples and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Who are we to stand in God's way? I think this is just a fantastic passage and have enjoyed studying it throughout the week. And there's a ton in here that we could talk about, and I know I've talked about a bit of it. But I want to close this morning with four very quick kind of points, applications that I felt led to share that continued to stand out as I was studying. So first, prejudice is real. We can see clearly at the beginning of the church that there was still significant prejudice between Jews and Gentiles. Paul in Ephesians calls it a dividing wall of hostility. The racial divide between Jews and Gentiles was huge and arguably it accounts for one of the clearest examples of segregation and racism in human history. Prejudice is real and the church is not immune to it. It was real back then and if you haven't been paying attention, it's real today. And yes, it's real on a cultural and society level, but the reality is it's real on an individual heart level. If we can all be honest with ourselves today, we need to admit that we all have some form of prejudice towards someone. Now, it may have nothing to do at all with race or ethnicity. It could merely be about what school someone went to, what clothes they wear, what political party they affiliate with, or maybe it's just because the first time you met them, they came across the wrong way to you. Or perhaps it's because something someone else said about them before you even met them, that developed some prejudice towards them in your heart. Now, I'm not trying to get on a soapbox this morning as I'm just as guilty of having prejudice at times as anyone else. We see it in Peter. But let me challenge you with what has been challenged me from this passage. You see, whoever that person is or those people are that may be coming to your mind right now, we might have some prejudice towards, know this, that God loves them. They were made in the same image of God that you and I are, and God shows no partiality. We don't decide who God shows mercy to. We don't decide who God shows grace to. Just like Peter, though, we need to get on board with God's mission. Die to ourselves, die to our own prejudice, and be his ambassadors of grace and mercy and love and good news to all. We've got to realize that we don't deserve God's grace any more than the next person. God shows no partiality. My prayer is that we would continue to be transformed to be more like Christ in this area. And I encourage you and challenge you with something to actively get involved with this. I want you to seek out to know, invite people into your home that are different than you fellowship with them, share the good news of Jesus with them. And maybe, Lord willing, you might be united with them as one body in Christ, the church. You see, prejudice is real, but we have something far more powerful. The gospel overcomes it all. Second, God is patient. 
God is just so patient with us. You see, prejudice and sin and our struggles don't typically disappear overnight. Our passage this morning likely takes place some seven or ten years after the Great Commission to go to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all nations. However, God's people, the Jewish believers, they've been stuck sharing the gospel with their own people, with their own nation, with very few exceptions. But God patiently waits He helps his bride slowly along and patiently. His mission's gonna get done. It gets done in our passage, but God is patient with us through the process. So maybe this morning you're struggling with something right now, a particular sin, or maybe you're just running away from God in a particular area of your life. I urge you to turn around, run back to Jesus, sit at his feet in prayer, in humility, and through it all know how patient God is with you. Know that he's going to finish that good work that he started in your life. And one day he's going to finish that good work he started among the nations, the Gentiles. God is patient. Third, prayer has power. I love the name of a book by one of my favorite preachers, H.B. Charles Jr. The title is, It Happens After Prayer. I can't help but notice in our text that both Cornelius and Peter They have these huge encounters with an angel with the Lord that leads to this huge, significant event, and it all started right before, right after, right during prayer. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Both Peter and Cornelius had consistent and routines of times of prayer in their life. I know that's very difficult, I promise, I understand. My kids love to interrupt prayer time. But you see, there's power in prayer. God has a habit of using prayer to do great things. Since I mentioned HB's book on prayer, let me share a quote that I love from it. It's not necessarily about our text, but I think it's encouraging when it comes to prayer. HB writes this. He says, prayer is our Christian duty. It's an expression of submission to God and dependence upon him. For that matter, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. Prayer has power. And like Peter and Cornelius, let's develop habits of prayer. Let's be a praying people here at Harmony. Fourth and final, trust God's plan. Trust God's plan. The final thing that really stood out to me in this passage are the consistent steps of faith and obedience that both Peter and Cornelius take throughout the passage. Often just one step at a time and they have no idea what's coming next, right? Cornelius sends men to Joppa to find a guy. Peter sees this vision and he's supposed to go down, meet some people, go with them. Seemingly having no idea what's happening next, but each step they take with faith, fully trusting in what God was doing through the Holy Spirit's prompting. And it's through those steps of faith and trust that God does a mighty work. The greatest of miracles, as we said earlier, the salvation of lost sinners. God has good works for each and every one of his people. We've got to trust God one step at a time. What's something that the Lord has placed on your heart? Maybe something you've been reading in God's word that you're struggling to obey or trust or who's that person or people that come to mind 
that you might have prejudice towards, that God might want you to take a step towards reconciliation or a step towards getting to know them, witnessing to them, sharing the gospel with them in love, building a relationship with them. I encourage you to write that down right now and take a step. Commit to taking one step in that direction and trusting in God's plans for you. You know, this morning I began by talking about fireworks. And how fireworks shows, right, they don't last forever. The big finale comes. The show's over. And if you don't know Christ this morning, I need to tell you that, the, that just like a fireworks finale, one day the big finale of life will eventually come, right? Christ is going to return and the finale will be here. We don't know the day or hour, but Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, for those who know Jesus, who've believed in him, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful. We should look forward in hopeful anticipation of that day. But for those who don't know Christ, it's going to be too late. If you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, I'd urge you to repent and believe. A finale is coming. God's calling you to trust in the one who came, lived a perfect life, died for you, rose on the third day, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. And if you do believe in him, you might have eternal life. See, our passage made it clear that this eternal life is available to all who believe. No partiality. If you don't know what that looks like, I'd encourage you to talk to me after the service. Talk to someone that you came with or sitting next to. I'm sure they would love to tell you. And if you do know the Lord, let's be a part of setting off some fireworks for the kingdom of God and share the gospel. Let's get on board with his mission and make disciples of all nations.